As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Drew Mattis is Chief Market Strategist at MetLife Investment Management. He has been wonderful about gaming the optimism of the American economic experiment. Drew, let's start with that. Glass half full, glass half empty at MetLife. Well, the good news is there's not going to be a recession this year. Uh, the bad news is it's still coming. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, we've had to move back our forecast from mid-year to, to the start of next year. Uh, the reason we went that far, actually, uh, is because we think consumers are still in this ball game. Uh, they're still uh, in this "you only live once" mentality post-COVID. Uh, but we do think when you get to the uh, start of next year, um, you'll have a lot of more headwinds, uh, and some of the data now that's currently pointing towards a recession will probably be even right. worse. Um, and, we, and we think uh, the turn of the year is about the right time. The raging economic debate, and maybe this will be alluded to in the academics of Jackson Hole, is whether our start, whether the rate post-pandemic we're gliding to. MetLife is riveted to the actuarial return expected within longer-term portfolios. Have you adjusted that view? Have you lowered your expectations for return? Or can you be more optimistic about a better return post-pandemic? So I'll say this. When we, when we think about you know, so let's get past the next recession, whenever that is, right? We think it's next year, but let's just say in the future. When you come out of that recession, what are you going to have? We're very optimistic there. Uh, and that means higher potential growth rates. We think that there's the potential for uh, participation rate rebound, uh, even beyond what we're seeing, uh, higher uh, productivity, it's kind of, although it's hard to get lower than we currently are, but we expect a rebound in productivity that's sustainable and will be sizable. Uh, and we expect, therefore, that potential growth will be higher. And with potential growth being higher, we expect um, intra neutral interest rates to also be higher at that point. Drew, build that out a little bit more. What's going to drive higher that productivity, potential growth, higher neutral interest rates? Where does all that come from? I, I think, so first of all, from kind of a, a worker perspective, I think you're going to have people engaging in the workforce for longer, over longer periods of their lives. Uh, and during healthier periods of their lives, I think the healthy period of people's lives are going to expand. Uh, and I think that that's a, a consequence of, of some of the uh, gains we've made in biotech during the um, uh, during the COVID uh, problem. 
And so I think that that, so that's first and foremost. Secondly, work from home will encourage older workers to potentially stay in the workforce for a little bit longer. Uh, And I think firms are going to respond to that by making it easier for older workers to stay in the workforce for longer. And so not only are we going to potentially have this rebound that we're seeing in in kind of the so-called prime working age group, uh, but we're also going to see other other groups actually engaging more aggressively in the workforce. And and that'll be good for the U.S. economy as a whole. Um, Productivity wise, you know, I'm doing this from my office via via Zoom. Right. I mean, in, in the past, uh, this would have been very difficult for us to pull off, um, and uh, it's just a much more convenient and, and productivity-enhancing uh, arrangement. Um, and I think if you go through and look at uh, whether it's the cost of putting objects in space, uh, which has deteriorated significantly or, or lowered significantly, when you look at gains in, in kind of biotech, um, you know, for 25 years, we were promised miracles in biotech, and, and we finally saw some and no one's paying attention, right? Because it, it, we were distracted by the fact that, you know, it, it was a crisis situation. Um, but, you know, those things are all add up and they'll all begin to interact with each other in ways that, you know, I, I can't probably fathom completely how they'll all interact, uh, but they'll be productivity enhancing. Uh, and I think we're in for a big productivity ride once we get through this next downturn. How rate sensitive do you think the economy will be that you describe? Uh, you know, I think initially every every economy is rate sensitive because you have to finance all this stuff. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, the die is cast in, in some of these industries. Uh, you're seeing the, the deteriorate or the lowering of price and, and cost of getting things into orbit. That's already happened. Um, and, and so, you know, I think for now, it's just a matter of how do we exploit it best um, and, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, my forecast is going to hinge on, the, on, on kind of, you know, uh, you know, am I right or am I wrong, which I, I know sounds obvious. Um, but I do think that, you know, the history has shown you should be optimistic for developments in technology, not pessimistic. So then what does that give your GDP statistic out one year? I'm not talking about quarter to quarter or that. On a longer, broader term, you're in a meeting at MetLife where people's idea of short term is 10 years. What's your GDP run rate? Can you get above 2% real GDP? Uh, if I had to put potential growth 10 years from now, I'd, I'd probably put it closer to three than two and a half. Wow. Three real percent G- real GDP. I, I think that that is a reasonable estimation. Wow. That, John, that is a wow statistic from Drew Mattis. I can't convey how off norm that is. And that goes to the responsibilities of an insurance company yeah. where they're really focused every day on a long-term view. So, Drew, can we finish on this just quickly? If we get a rate hiking cycle ending with a hike this week, let's just say that. Maybe you get another one, but who knows? Drew, when they start cutting, have you got firm ideas on what they cut back to? Because clearly there's a consensus out there that we don't go back to zero. What's your view on that currently? I think that I think there'll be a three-handle at the low point for the next cycle. Okay. And you think the bond market is well-priced for that, given the way you see the yield curve evolving in the last few months? I'm actually a little surprised at where the yield curve is, given this expectation that we're in a, uh, you know, we're going to have a soft landing, to be honest. I, I think, you know, when you think about what a soft landing means, it means that the Fed probably wouldn't have to reverse course. Um, so they're going to be stuck at kind of this five, you know, five percent, five percent plus for a Fed funds rate. Um, and so where should the rest of the yield curve be in that kind of scenario? And what should that yield curve be shaped like? Uh, and when I look at the current shape of the yield curve, I don't I, I don't see that reflecting that belief. Drew Mattis, thank you, of MetLife Investment right. Management. 
Marilyn Watson briefs now, head of Global Fundamental Fixed Income Strategy at BlackRock. This is an incredibly important conversation, folks, on what the prescription is forward, which Marilyn is to be flexible and nimble. I'm going to editorialize into 2025. How am I flexible and nimble clipping coupons in fixed income? So in fixed income at the moment, as you say, I think you do need to be flexible and you need to be nimble because it's a very uncertain environment still. At the moment, you can get very attractive carry um, at the front end of the curve still, also in uh, commercial paper, um, in some short dated investment grade bonds. And at the moment, it, you know, it pays to actually not take too much duration risk, not take too much risk, but just clip those coupons and get the income. But as the, um, as the economy evolves in the US and in Europe and elsewhere, as we get more information you know, from the Fed tomorrow, from the ECB on Thursday, and over the next few weeks and next couple of months, as we continue to see more economic data from uh, the US or from the Eurozone, which, as you mentioned earlier, has seen some pretty weak data in the Eurozone at the moment, then we will continue to see a shift both in the yield curve and in the opportunities right. that I think that are available. So at the moment, I think it pays to, you know, get the carry, uh, to not take too much risk, but then to be able to really deploy that dry powder when the opportunities arise. I, I need to conflate in here, Marilyn, the news now, and it's Torsten Slock writing for Apollo, looking at loans. I mentioned loans in the previous hour is a mystery to me, the default rate of high yield and such. Is the market too complacent about what is to come in commercial real estate, what is to come in these strange leveraged loan vehicles in derivatives within your world? Are we too complacent? So I don't know that it's too complacent, but I don't think there's a very clear view on the trajectory of the economy going forward. At the moment, you know, our, our, our core view is that there won't be a recession this year in the US. Uh, we think that the US remains pretty resilient and while it is slowing, it remains on a, on a pretty solid footing. Um, and when you look at the commercial real estate um, sector, then it has already been negatively impacted by the very aggressive rate hikes. But as you say, perhaps not as much as some people may have expected. When you look at leveraged loans and elsewhere, you look at, you know, high yield overall has, has performed you know, very well this year. But I think at the moment, um, you know, a lot of investors are still looking at um, really getting in, I think, in a bottom-up fundamentals. So there's a big difference between the different uh, bonds and the different issuers that you can also buy within the uh, high yield sector and the spread and the total yield that you can get there as well. But at the moment, I think there isn't really a consensus on the trajectory of the economy and how bad, if it's bad at all, it will be next year. So I don't know that it's complacent. I think there's just not yet enough data for the market to be able to tell. Let's work through some of this work from Torsten Slot this morning. And Marilyn, good morning. Allow me to share the full quote. Markets are not taking the ongoing rise in default rates for high yield and loans seriously. Many investors argue that this is just normalization or these are companies nobody has heard about. The reality is that more and more companies are defaulting because the cost of capital is higher. Higher cost of capital is precisely how monetary policy works by making it more difficult to get financing. The Fed hikes are biting harder and harder, and all investors should have a view on how high they think default rates will go during this cycle. Marilyn, can you have a view on that today? And would that lead you to believe that you should back away from areas of this market, which are going to face much, much higher funding costs when they come back to market in maybe 12 months, 18 months from now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can. And as I say, 
At the moment, you don't need to take the, the credit risk in the high yield sector when you can get very decent carry elsewhere, uh, much higher up the, the credit spectrum. I think also, um, you know, when you're looking at your overall allocation, when you look at the equity market versus the high yield market, for example, we also like some of the beta in the equity market. So you don't need to take the risk there. You don't need to take the credit risk. So you can take a view. Um, and our position at the moment, I would say, is relatively cautious. It's relatively, you know, high quality. And as I say, we're being very nimble and we're really steering clear of um, too much duration risk, although we have added a little bit there. But we're also just being very, very cautious from a bottom-up perspective. And we want to know and understand exactly what we're buying every, in every single issuer, in every securitized asset, in every investment-grade bond. We want to understand exactly the fundamentals from a bottom-up perspective of the issuer itself and of the sector as a whole. So I think you can take a view. And at the moment, we don't think it pays to take the risk um, further down the credit spectrum. You mentioned they're taking on a little bit more duration risk. Can you give us a little bit more colour there? What have you been doing? So we've added a little bit on the margins because, um, you know, it is our view that uh, the Fed, you know, will, will hike again this week and then maybe pause. Um, the Fed itself um, has indicated in the, you know, the previous uh, summary of economic projections potentially one more hike, but um, we don't know that yet. Obviously, we need to see a lot more data to see whether that comes through or not. But we have been adding a little bit more duration um, in the front end and the belly of the curve in the US. Also, um, in the Eurozone, um, you know, we think that the ECB will hike again this week. They may hike again in September, but that's nowhere near a clear-cut clear uh, scenario anymore, uh, given the data. Um, and it does, we do think it now pays to take a little bit duration, more duration risk, get a little bit more yield, um, and just to lock in some of those rates. Not even the hawks on the ECB want to commit to anything beyond this week. find that interesting. Marilyn, thank you. Marilyn Watson of BlackRock. Enjoy London, Marilyn. It's good to see you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Yeah, I remember, John, when you whispered to me somewhere in May of 2020, John, General Motors, Tom, General Motors, you've got to do it. 20 to 60, and then a challenge last year, to say the least, and now ebbing and flowing here, 35 to 40. It has been a challenge through General Motors, including all manufacturers, through the pandemic, and now they look to profitability. Joining us, their chief financial officer, driving the financial ratios at the complexities of the future of General Motors, Paul Jacobson joins us uh, this morning. Paul, define profitability. Where on the income statement are you zeroed in on on profitability out 24 months, out five years for General Motors? 
Well, good morning, Tom, and thanks again for having us. It's always a, always a pleasure to be with you, especially on a, on a day like today where we're announcing the tremendous results that the, the GM team uh, put forward. And I just want to extend a great big thanks to, to them worldwide for the results that they, uh, they posted during the quarter. You know, when we're, looking at, when we're looking at profitability, you know, it's a whole range of outcomes. Obviously, EBIT matters. But one of the things I think we've been really focused on, and I think it's worked for us, is, is the combination of market market share and margin and, and growth. So the end of the day, it's not just about producing and selling more vehicles. It's about making sure that we're maintaining and expanding our margins going forward. And when you look at the track record that we've had, especially over the last six months, but really over kind of the last six quarters, uh, the team's done an amazing job producing uh, vehicles that customers demand. Right. And uh, you know our biggest challenge is we can't get them fast enough, but uh, uh, customers have really responded and we really appreciate that. Okay, uh, that's right where I want to go. And that there's a shortage of, you know, there's always in every company four or five vehicles. Everybody wants the same car. Do you have a lot of pricing flexibility now and into 2024? Can you raise prices? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to raise prices across the board, but one of the things that we've seen that has really manifested itself is uh, customers demanding higher trim levels. Uh, in fact, we created over the last 18 months the Denali Ultimate, which was a higher-end trim level than our high-end Denali on the GMC Yukons uh, in response to customers wanting them. And now what we see when we look at our trucks and our SUVs, about 70 to 75% of them are being priced at premium levels uh, where customers are demanding that. So I think we've done a good job of responding to where customer uh, uh, demand is and uh, what they're looking for in our products. As far as the core prices, obviously the business is really competitive. We focused on price stability, uh, yeah. and I think uh, I think our results show that we've done a good job of that. John, a pickup truck. This used to be, you know, you 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 wanted an old GM pickup truck that you could drive around with your guitar next to you, and you know the you're whole. Describing yourself you're as you're a down kid. at Auburn University, and you get an old GM pickup truck that you paid dead paid. $3,000 and you could see the road through the floor. Mm. GMC, Sierra, Denali Ultimate. Ready? $91,900. That's what money. Paul's selling today. So, Paul, are you telling us that you're expecting higher average selling prices in the second half? Yeah, so John, we, we saw um, we saw higher uh, ATPs in the second quarter, about sixteen hundred dollars higher than the first quarter sequentially. Um, you know, I think uh, we're going to continue to watch it. We've taken this whole year with a little bit of caution, um, just understanding the macro that's out there. And uh, and what we said at the beginning of the year was, if the customer held in and we were able to maintain pricing, we uh, expected to significantly outperform the guidance that we posted. Uh, and then after the first quarter, we raised guidance by $500 million on the EBIT line, and now we're raising it by a billion dollars. So we see a lot of stability in the market. Um, we're just kind of taking it one day, one month at a time and, uh, and watching the results come in. We've got to be focused on quality, and we've got to be focused on getting production in the vehicles that customers want. Let's just talk about customers a little bit more. We saw some data recently, I think, from the Federal Reserve in the last couple of weeks about people being rejected for auto loans. Paul, can you give us an idea of how some of these purchases are being financed? and the kind of trends you're seeing develop. 
So, you know, we, we've got a lot of good insight on that through our GM Financial uh, captive uh, company, and uh, their results are, are pretty strong. We continue to um, uh, write new loans. In fact, we've uh, written at a higher share um, the first half of the year than, than traditionally, uh, which is not a bad thing. Uh, we're there to meet our customers uh, where they need us, and uh, GM Financial has done a great job of that. We watch the credit uh, metrics on a weekly basis uh, across their entire portfolio, and we haven't seen anything that gives us uh, reason for concern. Um, you know, we have really good high quality borrowers uh, on our new vehicles and uh, the credit is performing quite well um, from that. So we understand obviously in the subprime world and some of the used cars where we've seen <coughs> banks tightening a right. little bit, um, that's not necessarily our forte, but certainly where we're uh, lending on new vehicles, uh, the results are pretty strong. Uh, Paul, I'm going to pick on Ite Macaulay at Citigroup. And that, you know, from the pandemic, from the end of 2019, I got a shareholder return of 3%, 4% per year. Whatever the number is, it's low single digit. Clearly, it's not acceptable. The fact is, somebody as knowledgeable as Ite McCauley or the team over at Bloomberg Intelligence looks for huge share price performance from GM. What is going to be the catalyst for people to realize the new profitability of GM? What's the thing that's going to get me to Ite? Macaulay's price target, which is a double. Yeah, so that's that's the question of the day, Tom, and, and one that we spend a lot of time thinking about, obviously, for our shareholders. You know, one of the things that we've got to do is we've just got to continue to consistently perform. I'm a big believer that the market can't ignore fundamentals too long. Uh, and when you look at the type of performance that we've been driving, uh, I think we're establishing a really good track record of credibility. So that's job one. Number two, on the macro side, clearly it's been a bit of a headwind uh, over the last 18 months as, you know, expectations are consistently downward from where we are, which is why it's so important now that we've put two quarters out there with, with a raise on the guidance. Um, this year will be really, really strong. We're overcoming uh, pension headwinds. We're overcoming some normalization at GM Financial's earnings. But, you know, the, the results are going to be very similar, if not uh, if not potentially better than uh, better than last year. So that's what we're focused on. On, on the market, I think it'll come around. Um, you know, we've got to make sure that the macro clears up a little bit. I think I think we've seen that over the last couple of months. And, you know, I think we've got to make sure that we reach an agreement with the UAW, um, not just for us, but as an industry, because obviously there's some uncertainty around that in investors' eyes. Uh, but we're focused on executing. We're focused on getting a deal that works for our people uh, and rewards them for the uh, tremendous work that they're doing across the board. Paul, really unfair of us to save this question until the end, because we only have a couple of minutes left, but I need to get this in. There are some subtle indicators worldwide that EV demand is tailing off. And I ask this question to you as a CFO, how do you manage the risk of a massive investment cycle and a huge push wholesale just going into EV, not working out? And in five to 10 years, consumers don't want this stuff. We see greater efficiencies through hybrids, maybe even fantastic sustainable fuels. Paul, as a CFO of a car company right now, how do you manage that risk? Well, John, I think that's a it's a great question, but it's one that, you know, when I look at the portfolio of vehicles that we have, really, really great internal combustion engine vehicles and a growing EV business off of a platform where we've designed EVs from the ground up, uh, a lot of the EVs that are on the market are, you know, traditional ICE vehicles where, you know, companies have put a battery solution into it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's not optimized in that standpoint. When you look at the Ultium platform of vehicles where we're growing production, 
very, very rapidly. Uh, now, we think we've got vehicles that customers demand, and you certainly see that in our order books across the board. So one of the things that you haven't seen from us is the type of pricing volatility that many of our competitors are experiencing uh, with some of those uh, vehicles that, uh, that were early to market. We think yeah. our vehicles, uh, when you look at the Silverado EV, 40% more range than anything else that's out there across the board. We think we can win customers over over the long term, but we've also got a very good ICE portfolio uh, to fall back on, uh, and it's driving incredible performance for us. I said it was unfair. It was unfair because we need a much longer conversation about this in the future. Paul, appreciate your time, sir. The General Motors CFO. This is a joy. Let us segue here right now to Michael Zizis. He's out of Georgetown uh, with tours of duty along the way, particularly in municipal finance. He is now global head of fixed income research at Morgan Stanley. And I, I just I can't say enough, Michael, of the idea of a guy with massive policy cred like you and municipal bond, the granularity of municipal bonds in America doing global uh, fixed income research. What is your skill set bring to this new position at Morgan Stanley? To me, it's radically different than most, quote, global heads of fixed income. Well, I think at a very high level, developed markets in general have had this interaction with public policy that used to just really be the area for emerging markets, right? So I think you need those interacting skill sets. And even like a day like today and tomorrow where we're waiting on the Fed, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand the public policy nuance behind all of that, right? So one of the reasons that we're so constructive on the bond markets right now is that the Fed has kind of, over the last 18 months, gone over this trajectory where it was creating substantial uncertainty in the bond market in order to deal with inflation that arguably was created by some of the fiscal policy choices made along the way by the U.S. government and by both parties. Understanding that trajectory means that whether or not the Fed goes through with that second hike in September, that they're signaling that the job is almost done or that they've almost got inflation under control as they feel they do. So you switch from massive uncertainty in the bond markets, creating volatility in the way that I think municipal bond investors understand that if you've got elevated volatility and you've got negative total returns because yields are going higher, that regardless of the fundamentals, that's a really negative backdrop. We're kind of reversing that and putting it on its head right now. I'm fascinated by uh, when I look at fixed income in the equity market, we all have a legacy of shadows and opaque out there right now. All my radar is up on this opaque word loans or leveraged loans or that. Does Morgan Stanley fixed income research feel there are challenges in the fixed income space, shadows that we really can't observe? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for example, uh, once we get into 2024 and then really escalates through 2028 in leveraged finance, there is a substantial wall of maturities. And unless you get a meaningful amount of free cash flow growth, you're going to get net interest coverage going down substantially. So for example, if you assume, which I think is a far too conservative assumption, that you don't get any free cash flow growth, about a third of single Bs all of a sudden have sub one uh, one times coverage. So that's a real challenge, and arguably it's one of the 
structural challenges that's kept spreads relatively attractive. Another one that's kept spreads relatively attractive is the bank demand issue and how that's changed since the regional banking crisis. So mm -hmm. these are things we have to watch on the horizon. There's their secular headwinds. But I think the setup for high-grade bonds right now is pretty positive, at least into year-end, because you're taking away this uncertainty from the Fed and fighting inflation. Something we've been digging into over the last week or so is who is actually paying these market rates. And a question I've asked, and if you could give us an idea, yeah. don't expect the precise numbers, but just the difference between what a company's coupon is right now from debt issued, issued in yeah. the last couple of years to what the market rate for that interest is if they came to the market today. Just how wide yeah. is that? Well, okay, so our chief cross-asset strategist, Andrew Sheets, wrote about this on Sunday, and it's fascinating that in a lot of ways across the capital structure of markets, the bond yield, the bond is yielding more than the asset that's financing, which is totally upside down. So the investment grade corporate credit index yields about 5.4%. The Russell 1000, the earnings yield is only about 4.8%. That's not totally unprecedented, but it's pretty unprecedented. It's only happened 2% of the time in the last 20 years, right? That difference kind of makes sense if you thought that we were about to accelerate economic growth pretty substantially, but we've got the opposite view. Our economists think we're continuing to slow down. Obviously, we haven't slowed down as much as we thought we would, but without that growth, then there's a problem if you're having to finance with a higher yield than you're actually earning from. Tom touched on this. When does this start to bite? Can we just build that out just a little bit more? It's going to bite certain parts of the economy and certain issuers more than others, yeah. quickly than others. But just yeah. on average, where does it start to bite? Well, I think it's already starting to bite. And I think the, the last CPI print sort of showed that, right? And it's part of the reason that our economists, I think if they were here, they would tell you that the Fed, yes, they're going to hike this month. But I think ultimately are probably not going to hike in September because the accumulated effect of everything that's being done so far is going to be tightening in and of itself over the course of the rest of the year. So that is also a good setup for bonds and bond yields and total returns. What does the Bloomberg Total Return Index do off Lehman and Barclays? I'm looking at a Microsoft. I pick Microsoft, folks, just because the earnings. I Believe it or not, Microsoft does have debt. I don't know if you were aware of that. I go out 10 years, the Microsoft 2 and 5 eighths of 33, and I've enjoyed a Tom Keen price decline from 130 down to 97. What's the likelihood, given high rates and sustained high rates, that we see a price breakdown through the low? of the last number of months? I don't know that you necessarily get a substantial price breakdown. I think a lot of the return you're going to see is going to come off of yield and coupon, uh, mostly because while the Fed could be closer to the end uh, being done hiking, there's still the secular headwinds that we talked about, right? There's still the bank demand headwind. Uh, there's still some lingering credit issues. So it's not necessarily an environment where you're going to get yields moving a lot lower or spreads moving a lot tighter. But clipping that coupon in and of itself is quite attractive relative to equities, which are probably going to be more challenged in our estimate. It's channeling Mike Wilson there. I mean, you see how he's that, that, that what you think? It's channeling Mike. You know, how much do you and the equity guys talk to each other? I'm oh, fascinated by that. I mean, Mike's making all the headlines today yeah. uh, talking about the challenges of a bear market sure. call. He hasn't changed his view as well. But how much does fixed income at Morgan Stanley go back and forth with equity? Oh, the, the collaboration is constant. Yeah, I mean, we're, we sit on the same floor, we're by each other, we're, we're on calls weekly, collaborating, making sure that we're challenging each other. So uh, the, the answer, in short, is a lot. Michael, this was great. Yeah. It's good to see you. Thank you, buddy. Thanks so much Michael for having me. Appreciate Stanley. it. Thank you. Yeah. Just awesome, as always. Yeah. 
Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And now joining us, the David Rubenstein as well with the Carlisle Group and, of course, his work for Bloomberg uh, Wealth as well. What a timely conversation, David. What did Barry Sternlich say about the commercial real estate debacle to come? Well, he thinks it's going to be a, uh, a you know, hurricane, a, a, you know, kind of a Category 5 hurricane. What you have is a combination of people not going back to work physically and, and uh, people um, really uh, – because of higher interest rates, not valuing buildings as much as they used to. So the result is you have an enormous amount of commercial office space in this country that's worth a fraction of what it was supposed to be worth. And at some point over the next couple of years or so, uh, Barry Sternlich would say, and others would say as well, this real estate is going to have to go into default in some way or another. The banks are not going to be able to uh, um, really justify the, 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 the debt that they have on the, uh, on the buildings, and the landlords aren't going to be able to pay the debt. So you're going to see mm-hmm. a very large um, effort to, I'd say, sell a lot of this debt at discounts, right. and it's going to cause some problems in the banking community and the real estate community. There's a suppleness to Barry Sternlich's career, folks. If you're just joining us, this is the conversation today. I'd like to say to Mr. Rubenstein that we'll extend this discussion for one hour, but John Farrell would be upset by that at 9.00. David Rubenstein, this is so important. Who is Barry Sternlich, and why do people like you lean forward? Barry Sternlich is one of the major forces in the U.S. Uh, real estate market. He built a very large company in the uh, commercial office building and commercial uh, real estate uh, world. But he also built a large hotel company and ultimately sold that to Marriott. But Starwood Hospitality was for a long time one of the largest hotel companies in the United States, consisted of major brands like Weston and uh, uh, Sheridan, among others. He also invented the W brand, which is uh, now uh, owned, in effect, by Marriott. But even when he sold all that to Marriott, he kept uh, his real estate company, which is now one of the largest in the United States, and it, it owns enormous amounts of properties across the uh, uh, spectrum of, of real estate properties. And uh, he would say a lot of it uh, has, is struggling. Um, he has t- turned some buildings back to the lenders, as most real estate developers and owners of real estate are beginning to do, unfortunately. And so 
Uh, he made his uh, name, I would say, initially in the late 1980s, buying distressed real estate from the RTC. <clears throat> and I suspect he thinks right. there's going to be a lot of distressed real estate in the next couple of years as well. Uh, hopefully, he hopes it's not going to be his real estate. Well, okay, but distressed real estate, uh, David Rubenstein, clearly means the Japanese show up. We're beginning to see that crane, C.J. Hughes over at Cranes, writing out new Japanese interest in the island of Manhattan as well. Will history repeat itself? in our commercial real estate debacle where the foreigners show up? Well, usually what happens is foreigners show up before the debacle occurs, uh, not after the debacle occurs. Right now, I think you're seeing a slow um, diminution in values in office buildings. Anybody who's watching this show knows that when you go to a major office building in New York or other major cities these days, you don't see a lot of people there. And therefore, eventually, the people using that real estate are going to say, I don't need as much space as I used to because people are working from home three days a week or two days a week. And therefore, I'm going to shrink my, in my next lease the amount of space I have. And therefore, you're going to see enormous shrinkage in the, I think, the usage of office buildings. And as a result, the values of uh, the leases are going to go down. And as a result, the building's property value is going to go down as well. In some cases, the banks are going to be forced to take over the building because the landlord can't afford to service the debt any longer. Mm -hmm. This is going to take place over another two or three years or so. Is Barry Sternlicht an optimist on, I guess, the durability of work from home and the migration of commercial real estate office to individual residences? Does well, he think we could pull that off? I think he thinks we're not likely overnight to be able to go right back to the five days a week and using all the space we used to. And so I think he's quite... Mm -hmm. uh, cognizant of the fact that the world has changed in the United States. Outside the United States, he would say people are going back to offices, and it's not quite the phenomenon we have in the United States. For a number of reasons, the United States, you don't see people going back to the office five days a week, with very few exceptions. Uh, but he's a very talented real estate investor. Right. I've known him for quite some time. And he's, uh, he also moved his entire operations from the uh, Northeast to Miami. Uh, ahead of everybody else moving to Miami. So he was ahead of the curve there, as he is in many other areas. And I think he's operating quite uh, effectively down there. He's, he's, his company now has over $100 billion of, of real estate properties. And uh, while he has given some of them back to the lenders on the whole, I think he's in pretty good shape. Uh, Barry Sternlich on the hotel business. Of course, Starwood is iconic there within uh, hotels. What did he say about the future of hotels? All I know, David, is every time I call a hotel, the price is dramatically higher than it was 12 months ago or 24 months ago. Well, because they know you're going to stay there, they probably are jacking up the rate. Thank you. Um, because they're sure you can afford it. But I would say that the hotel business has been is coming back from from the depths of a of the of the COVID period of time when essentially nobody was using hotels and uh, the stock prices of hotel companies were way way down. Now hotels are coming back because we're seeing in the United States enormous amount of spending on discretionary uh, travel on mm -hmm. discretionary um, uh, going away from home kinds of things, restaurants, amusement parks, uh, hotels, and so that the spending is is up quite nicely in that area, and hotel, hotels are coming back. Um, he's not so much in the hotel business as he was, but he's a leading light in terms of his thought processes, and he, he's really helped create a number right. of brands, uh, not only W, but he also created the Baccarat Hotel brand as well. Uh, David, in the time we've got left, I've got to bring up a bombshell interview earlier this morning. Drew T. Mattis was iconic at UBS with Maury Harris. He now holds court at MetLife. Drew Mattis with exceptional optimism on the
the American economy looked for long-term growth that would approach 3% real GDP. That's a hugely optimistic view out of American exceptionalism. Do you share that optimism that we underplay what our real GDP growth is and what it will mean to our financial system? Well, that's a very high uh, real GDP growth. An economy of our size, uh, real GDP growth, probably around 2% or 2.2, 2.3% is probably realistic uh, in, the, in the current environment. I think 3% or greater real GDP growth when inflation is still reasonably high, I think is, is, is quite a high growth. Because if you have 3% inflation and you're saying 3% real growth, that's really 6% uh, GDP growth the way it's measured. And, and I think that's probably not likely in an economy of our size. We did grow at 6% at one quarter after, mm-hmm. the, uh, after COVID because we were so low. But rel- right now, I think economies of our size, real GDP growth, 2% is probably realistic. David, thank you so much. The most timely interview I've heard with Barry Sternlich. You'll see it tonight on Bloomberg Television. Barry Sternlich of Starwood with Mr. Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.